And we're going to look at verses 9 through 12. This weekend, we started out talking about being intimate with God and rethinking how we gather together, rethinking how we scatter as the church and how we respond to the working of the Holy Spirit. So Peter gives us a picture of what the Christian life is to look like as we live it out as resident aliens. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, we'll read the text and then we will pray and ask God to bless our time. I'm so stoked to be here with you guys. Did I already say that? (laughs) Okay, Bible. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. Inspired by your spirit, it's authoritative to rock our worlds and change our minds and our hearts. Do it, Lord. Do it today. Give us a picture of what it is like to to be satisfied in you and yet totally radically committed to serve and love the people around us. Oh, Lord, would you just move by your spirit in our hearts. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of ways that the church is viewed today. Whether wrong or right, whether deserved or undeserved, it's a popular opinion. Some people view the Christian church as a group of political activists, people who simply just want to, they have a political agenda and they just want to see it happen through legislation and human effort with no relationship, no compassion, no power, no truth at all whatsoever. Whether that's right or wrong, that's the way that many people view the church today. A bunch of people that sit at home, they vote and have nothing to do with the rest of the world. Another view on the other side is some believe that the church is, the church is full of escapists, those who put their heads in the sand, as it were. They're not engaged at all. In fact, they just really have nothing to do with the world. They heard something about Jesus coming back, so they climbed up in a tree, sold everything they had, and they're like, waiting for Jesus. I haven't even talked to a human for 10 years. I'm just waiting for Jesus. So what does the Bible say? What is it supposed to look like as we live out this life as resident aliens on mission? Well, first of all, what Peter tells us is that there is a calling. There is a calling to live our lives with this purpose. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So far from being activists or escapists, we're really to live as spiritual immigrants. Those who are totally committed to serving and loving the people around us while always acknowledging that our true home lies beyond this world. C.S. Lewis once said that on this journey of life, God would provide us with many pleasant inns, but they are never to be mistaken for home. So what is that? What is this call? How is it defined? It's defined by God himself. He is the one that calls us. And Peter gives us a description of what that means here in verses 9 and 10. 
And what Peter does is he picks up what God spoke to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 19, and then he applies it to the church. What was it that was said? God told Israel that they would be a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. Peter is not just referring to the specific role that Aaron and his sons would fulfill as the official priests of Israel, but to Israel's life as a whole, as a representation of God to all of the nations. How would they do that? How would we as Israel, if we were back in their day, in their shoes, how would we fulfill that call? To represent God amongst the nations. Two ways, to be holy and to be a blessing. To be holy and to be a blessing. By keeping the covenant, Israel would do two things. They would keep themselves apart. They would be separate, sanctified, different. There would be a distinction made between them and all the other nations. But there's another way that they would represent God. Just like the priest, the nation of Israel would exist also to convey the presence and blessings of God to all the nations around them. So on the one hand, they're set apart, they're holy, there's a distinction. And yet on the other hand, they are to convey and mediate the very presence and blessings of God to all of the humans around them. Now Peter takes that truth of Exodus 19 and he applies it to the church. How can he do that? Can he make just some broad hermeneutical leap and just take a scripture out of the Old Testament? How is this fulfilled? Well, it's very simple. What God pointed towards in the Old Testament is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because we must understand that Israel, like us as fallen humanity, failed to be the true faithful covenant partners of God. We failed often to mediate because of our fallen nature. Israel failed, but along came one who would succeed. Jesus, the true and faithful Israelite, the true and faithful covenant partner of God, the one who did all that the Father desired for him to do. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf and took the penalty upon himself for our failure to do so. Jesus brought us together in this family so that distinction that once existed between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians tells us, has been broken down. That middle wall of separation has been broken down and now we're all brought together in one family because Jesus fulfilled on behalf of Jew and Gentile what we could never do for ourselves. He lived the life that you never could have lived and he died the death you should have died. Amen? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what makes Jesus the cornerstone of the church. That's what Peter was talking about earlier in this same chapter. The family is now built upon Christ. When you're born again, you joined the church. Most people in our culture today think, I got saved and maybe in five years I'll join a church. No, the Bible says when you were born again, the Holy Spirit came in you, you were sealed with the Spirit, and you immediately joined the church. Look around you. Here's your church, brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your family. You're like, oh, really? (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Could you have told me that before? No. You joined the church. You're now in the family of God. And just as Peter is referring to here, the church was to be a mix of Jew and Gentile, so the church today is a mix of races and classes and cultures all brought together. Perhaps many of us were even natural enemies up till that point. 
We may have been divided by these cultural things, maybe for ethnic reasons or what have you. Ultimately, we're all born in sin, so we're all by nature radically self-centered, and we're all on team me. (laughs) So we were natural enemies in that sense. Hey, what team are you on? You're on my team? No, I'm on my team. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're brought together. And now together as a diverse crew of hooligans saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are called to be holy, set apart, and to convey and mediate the presence and blessings of God together. Carson puts it like this in a book called Love in Hard Places. He says, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, it's not common race, not common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is a description of the church. Now, 2,000 years ago, there was a word that was profound, but rarely used. It was a word, koinonia which we know in Latin is communio, where we get our word from community. It's often translated fellowship, and it has nothing to do with coffee and donuts, as many Christians believe. They're like, donut, koinonia. No. (laughs) 2,000 years ago, the term koinonia was used to describe this idea of a, a utopian society where one day we'd all get along and sing We Are the World together. Every border would be broken down, every distinction, and we'd all just live happily ever after but it never happened. So the only time you really see the word used is with these poets and dreamers of those days until Jesus Christ comes on the scene and the spirit is poured out and the church is birthed. And now a Roman citizen would walk into a gathering and they would see male and female. They would see a slave and a free man. Maybe even the slave was teaching the scriptures. They would see Jew and Gentile. And you know what they would say? Koinonia. This is it. These people who are natural enemies have been brought together. What is it that you have? And the answer, of course, is Sunday school answer, Jesus. Good job. What's our purpose in that? Okay, we're called. Here we are. What's our purpose? Before we even talk about being missional, our number one purpose, the preeminent reason that I live and that you have a heartbeat and breath in your lungs right now, our number one reason is, as Peter said, we were called out of darkness into light that we we may proclaim his praise. That's why we exist, to proclaim the praises of God before we even think about anything else. In fact, if I were to summarize the purpose of the church, it would be threefold put in a little triangle. Number one would be glorifying God and only beneath that equipping the saints and evangelizing the lost. We must never forget our number one call is to be lovers of God, enjoyers of God, proclaiming his praises for what he's done for us. It's our purpose. You could clap for that, but I mean, I don't know. Verse 10 talks about us being illegitimate, but now we're made legitimate. You were once not a people and you had not received mercy, but now we are a people. We have received mercy. So we're called out, but what does it look like? We're called to be resident aliens, glorifying God, but what what does it look like? What are the characteristics of living out as resident aliens? He tells us in verse 11. He says, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So with those two words, he describes what the characteristics of a resident alien is to look like. 
What is distinct about us to the world? How do we live out this calling? Now that they were no longer identified with their culture primarily, they were no longer identified with their earthly citizenship, something else identified them. But it would be powerful and difficult. It would be powerful and difficult. G.K. Beale and Carson say in their commentary on this point, precisely because these people, the church, Jew and Gentile, were an international people and race and nation who were without the kind of territory that was part of being a nation in the eyes of the Romans, Christians found themselves in an eschatological tension that has been both an unavoidable challenge and a glorious privilege throughout 2,000 years of church history. It's both those things. It's a glorious privilege and an unavoidable challenge. He calls us sojourners and exiles. And those two phrases are significant. Sojourner means you live somewhere, but you don't have official citizenship there. Exile means you have a legitimate citizenship elsewhere. So what does that mean for the Christians? It means we live in a place and we dwell there and we reside there, and yet... Our citizenship lies somewhere else. We've come from a foreign country. That's how the phrase would be used. But we've come to reside by the natives. But we're exiles, meaning our inheritance, our identity is found somewhere else. It's no longer found in culture. It's no longer just found in our family or our abilities. It's found in God. Hebrews 13 Verses 13 through 14 say, Therefore let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one which is to come. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we are in the world, but not of the world. Our hope is not ultimately here. So our native land really becomes heaven, and yet we're residing here. So what does that mean? What does that look like? On the one hand, it means that we're not hostile to this world. But we're also not tourists. We're not transient tourists just cruising through. And many Christians function like that in the church today. They're like tourists. They're just kind of walking through life, snapping a picture here, snapping a picture there. But they're, they're never really committing to serve and to love the people around them. They're simply just transient. And yet they're also not totally enveloped into the culture entirely. Because they know that they are different. They know that there's something profoundly different. Resident aliens are positive and loving towards the people around them in their community, and yet they know that there is a distinction. They know that there is a distinction. After all, we were called out of darkness. We're very well aware of the darkness of this world. And the gospel exposes the evil and the idols within the world, and yet we do not withdraw. We do not withdraw. We are supposed to, like Jesus, incarnate our Christianity within the culture. So look at these two complementary truths. On the one hand, we're to be holy, set apart by God, distinct, pleasing to Him, satisfied in Him, and yet on the other hand, we are to be radically committed to living here and to serving and loving the people. Some of you love the first part and you hate the second. I'm holy. I'm holy. I'm so holy that I haven't talked to a non-Christian in 10 years. Children, don't touch the non-Christians. Get in the car. (laughs) We're leaving church and we're going through the (laughs) drive-thru. 
except Carpinteria doesn't have drive-thrus. So for those of you in Ventura, you may drive through the drive-thru. And all the while, we're looking to avoid people because after all, we're holy. Don't touch me. And we become like the Pharisees who would hold their garments close to themselves for fear that they'd be defiled amongst the common people. And thus, in some cases, we've created a, a bubble for ourselves. And that lends itself to an attitude that is completely ungodly and unbiblical, and that is one of superiority. I watched a documentary recently. It was one uh, done in in the South on a particular movement uh, of a Christian church, and they were very proud of their holiness. Like, oh, we're holy, we're set apart, we're so different. But it came off in almost this arrogant way, and this was best exemplified when a young man was being interviewed. He had an accent, so I'm not making fun, I'm just trying to imitate it. On camera, he said, you know, when I get around a non-Christian, I get sick to my stomach. To which I would respond, oh, maybe God wants to vomit when he sees your (laughs) self-righteousness. Perhaps. (laughs) See, if we only think in these terms without the heart of God, we actually lose the heart of God. And we become superior. Far be it. Who are we? We've been saved by grace. Amen. Now, on the other hand, some of you love the second part and you hate the first. You're like, culture, woo! <laughs> Holiness? Purity? That's so Puritan. <laughs> You're like, talking about residing, I'm residing with my girlfriend right now. <laughs> and we have no regard for being set apart, understanding that the way we live actually is supposed to represent the character and attributes of God. So what we need Church is a balance, amen? It's these two complementary truths brought together in perfect harmony, holy, set apart, sanctified, and yet residing, loving, serving, being on mission. We're to be radical as an alternate society within society. We're to be radical as a city, as the popular phrase goes, within a city, embracing that which is common grace, rejecting that which is antithetical to the gospel, and redeeming that which can be used for the furtherance of the kingdom. That is what we are to be doing as the Christian community. We're committed to serving and loving the people and having compassion upon them. And by the grace of God, we fulfill his commission for us to be his representatives. And yet all the while, We are always looking forward to the final consummation of when Jesus Christ comes and he establishes his kingdom and we see him face to face and he wipes away every tear from our eye and there will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more death. Friends, we don't look for utopia anywhere else. All the while, we are to be satisfied in God, satisfied in who he is and yet remaining here for the sake of his work. Now, having made that point, we are ignorant if we are not aware of the challenges and difficulties that go along with that calling. What is Peter warning us about here? He's saying, I know the nature of this gig. You're here, yet your home is in heaven, but you need to be here. So what's going to happen? You need to be aware. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. In your residing here, you must be aware that there is a war raging and it is not the culture that he's referring to, it's your flesh. This is a very important point. The temptations and pleasures of the flesh 
will always be very enticing to us within this process. There's always going to be a struggle between proclaiming God's excellencies and desiring to give in to the passions of the flesh. Peter says they wage war against your soul. There's a battle going on in our own hearts. And here what the answer, here's what the answer is not. The answer is not to flee your community. Some people respond, oh, it's so hard. This world's so wicked. I'm out. I'm tapping out. I'm out of Ventura. I'm out of Santa Barbara. I'm out of Goleta. I'm out of Carpentry. Too evil, too wicked. I'm going to the mountains. Go on, kids. We're never going to talk to anybody again. If that is your response, it shows that you are unaware of the depths of sin. Your flesh resides here. And you can make an idol out of anything. You know, living in L.A., um, we get a lot of young people who move there and their Christian parents reluctantly send them off to Babylon, (laughs) always warning them, honey, when you go and you get on that stage, when you get in front of that camera, beware lest you receive the glory of man. But we are ignorant to think that that temptation does not also exist within the church and everywhere we go. In fact, I think it's worse because it's more subtle. It's more subtle. We're ignorant if we're unaware of these, this raging war inside of us. And when we give in to sin, it actually ruins both. We've compromised holiness and we've compromised the witness to the world. And some of us, maybe even here this afternoon, we've, we've given in to sin. Perhaps you're even living in sin and allowing it into your life. Jesus would ask you, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the community, for the sake of the church, for the sake of your friends, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your own soul, stop. Turn. Be refreshed. Understand what it means to be satisfied. You're looking for satisfaction somewhere else. It's not another woman. It's not another man. It's not making idols out of your children. It's being satisfied in Jesus Turn away from that and become satisfied in Him. We will be the most successful in our mission in this world when we are most satisfied in God. Because we won't, we'll understand the depths of sin and that the answer is to be satisfied in Jesus, so we're not always going to want to flee. You know the way to flee is to pray. You don't physically flee, you pray. That's your rhythm of withdrawal and involvement in the world. You pray. You don't leave physically, you pray. Lord, help me. Help me to be satisfied in you right now. And as you taste and see that he is good, you will gladly forego these passions of the flesh because you've seen the beauty and value and magnificence and majesty of God that you'd be a fool to go anywhere else. Amen? It's almost like I envision it like this. I was thinking about this the weekend at the conference. I picture a, a young child, you know, maybe my daughter's age, just, just having this little popsicle. And she's like loving the popsicle. She's wild about it. And then the ice cream truck pulls up. Boom. You know, it's just there. And all of a sudden, in awe of the glory and splendor of all that is provided in the truck, what happens to the popsicle? Boom. She runs to the truck. And in a way, we make ourselves these little idols, like my little popsicle of sin. 
And yet God's like, boom, I am all satisfying. I am God. I created everything. I am the source of all joy and life. And your response is to drop your stinking popsicle. Amen? Just drop it and come be satisfied in God. And this will have consequences. When you're living radically satisfied in God, radically committed to the community, this will have consequences. Godly lies will always bring about two things, criticism and conversion. Criticism and conversion. Look at verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, watch yourself. Watch the way that you live. Be satisfied in God so that when people see not only what you do, but why you do it, they will be radically transformed. But some people will hate you. There will be criticism. There will be hatred. Jesus promised it. In this life, you have tribulation. People will be delivered up to be killed for the sake of the gospel. And it is in those moments that we must remember we live for God. Some of us have egos that need to be stroked and you want them to be stroked by the affirmation of humanity. And so therefore you compromise the truths of the gospel because you cannot bear to be criticized by humans. You need to learn to be satisfied in God. And we also must make it crystal clear what we are all about. Jesus didn't say, blessed are those who are persecuted for obnoxiousness snake. And some of us receive criticism for simply being obnoxious. You're like, ah, no, persecuting. We need to make sure the gospel is going to be an offense, but I don't want to offend people for the wrong reasons. But there will also be conversions. People will be transformed. People will be born again. People will be changed. They too will be brought out of darkness into, your, into God's marvelous light. And that is why we live here. Jesus said in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. People will hate us on the one hand, but we will also see converts coming to Jesus. People will hate us on the, on the one hand, but on the other hand, our good works should cause them to want us to not leave. It's kind of like your neighbors, like, oh, I know they're a Christian, I just hate them, but I just, don't leave. There's just, I just sense this peace. There's just something about you, oh, Republican, or whatever, but don't leave. Maybe you've been coming to reality, like, oh, I hate these church of Christian fundamentals, but don't leave. There's those people there that love me. Friends, you need Jesus. That's what's attracting you. It's the power and majesty of Jesus. It's the truth of the gospel. In fact, our good works would be so evident that if all the Christians were to leave, people would think something happened. Pastor Tim Keller, who's a pastor of a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, said that our good works should be so abundant that if all the Christians were to leave a city, the city would have to raise their taxes. Oh, snap. <laughs> so how can we do this practically? How can we live this out practically? Very simple and yet very profound. Number one, praying for the community radically. Praying for the community. We are to be radical in our prayers. And as we live here, we hear about other people's lives. We hear about their suffering. We see the evil that they have done. We see their lives and we're moved like Jesus was moved. 
And what has helped me is that, that concept of identification in praying and that desire to almost, even though you can't really, that desire to be in their shoes. And while you can't really put yourself in their shoes, you can pray like it. Remember Moses when in Exodus 32, when the people sinned and they threw all the gold in there and behold, the golden calf came out and they don't know what happened. Aaron's like, I don't know, it just was there and we're bumping and it's crazy and I'm just not responsible for it at all. And Moses comes down like, you've sinned. And so Moses, it says in Exodus 32, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, O Lord, notice his heart, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Wow. He couldn't. He wanted to to put himself in their shoes. Notice his language to God. Lord, blot me out instead. And even though that's great, in Moses' heart, he couldn't do it, could he? He could not make atonement for their sins. He's not the perfect sacrifice. So God responded to Moses saying, no, Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I must blot them out of my book because I'm a just God. We also see it in Daniel when he prayed. He identified on behalf of the Jewish people, even though he himself was righteous. No hint of superiority. How did he pray? He said, Lord, we have sinned. We have done wrong. We have acted wickedly. We have rebelled. We have turned aside from your commandments. We have turned aside from your rules. He identified with them. But even Daniel, as great as that is, even Daniel could not make atonement for their sin. Paul, even in the New Testament, have you noticed Paul's passion for the Jewish people? Remember in Romans 9? It's insane. Paul says that he wished he could be accursed or damned for his own countrymen. That's how much he wanted them to come to know Jesus. It says in Romans 9, 1 through 3, he said, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were damned and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It was hypothetical. Couldn't be done. Why? Because neither Moses nor Daniel nor Paul could provide a perfect sacrifice. But there is one who did. The perfect substitute. The one who was sinless. The one who ultimately stood in the gap where we could never stand in the gap. And he was cursed. He was condemned so that you and I would not have to be. And in response to the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, When we pray for our communities, we remember the same heart of God. He he left his throne of glory and he came to this earth and he dwelt amongst humanity. We too are to look and hear, listen to the people and what they're going through, watch their offense towards God. And we must pray for the people in our communities as though their sins were our own. We know they couldn't be. Jesus is the one that took it upon himself, but we should pray as passionately as if it were so. The second thing we need to do is to preach to the community. Being a resident alien means you must preach to the community. We are to be radical in telling the truth. We are to be radical in preaching. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute, I don't preach. I'm an introvert. I'm passive aggressive. I don't really preach. (laughs) 
Well, let me encourage you. There's two words for preaching in the New Testament. One of them is a herald. It's the job of obnoxious people like myself. The other is a term for gossiping. And we all can do it. We've all done it. Why, don't, why not gossip the gospel, right? It says in Acts chapter 8 that when the church was persecuted, they went everywhere. They were scattered. And they went everywhere gossiping the gospel. <gasps> Jesus. He lived the life you could never could have lived. He died the death. He should have died. I don't want this to go any farther, but I really do. So let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> right? We're all, why don't we just use a talent we already have that comes naturally to us and redeem it for the sake of the gospel? We're to go everywhere gossiping the gospel. Why is it so important that we're radical in preaching the truth? Why is it so important? Some would say, wait a minute, isn't the gospel, really, shouldn't the gospel just be collapsed into our good works? Isn't us just doing good works or social action the gospel? You know, giving a cup of cold water, that's the gospel. We'll get to that in a moment, but the answer is no. And here's why. To even say that shows that you've missed the point. Because the gospel deals with the most fundamental, the most radical problem in the entire world, and that is sin. All poverty that you see, all violence that you see, all war that you see in this world right now is the result fundamentally of sin. And the gospel is the only thing that can deal with sin. God dealt with sin upon his son at the cross, defeated, conquered, and now provides and offers forgiveness for anyone who would put their trust in him. Social action is not the gospel. We should still do it. We'll get to it in a moment. The gospel deals with the most fundamental and the most radical problem of the entire world. That is sin. If we mix those two together, we combined that which scripture keeps distinct. John Stott puts it like this. Through evangelism, we are brought from judgment into sonship. We're given freedom from self to freedom to serve, from decay into glory. That's what happens through the gospel. And I believe that evangelism is best done out of the context of community. Because people see your life. They see you living your life with gospel intentionality. The way you work, the way you marry, the way you raise family, the way that you spend your time, the way you spend your money. People see the gospel lived out. Now, that's indirect communication, but then you directly communicate the gospel to them. Peter says elsewhere, he says, you should be ready all the time to give a defense for the hope that lies within you. Most people interpret that to mean you need to have every scientific or textual answer for any you know, argument that's brought against Christianity. That's not necessarily true. What Peter's talking about is the way that you live should demand an answer. You live so radically for Jesus that people go, get in here. I demand to know why you're acting like this. And you're like, Jesus. There's a story about a particular woman who worked for a media company. And while she did all these great projects and brought success to the CEO and all these other companies, one time she totally blew it. She totally failed this job. And the deal with another company who had hired them to do their work dropped out. They lost a lot of money. But the CEO took full blame upon himself as a representative of the, of the company. He said, hey, I'm sorry, we fail. And the woman knew it was her fault, and she went to her boss and said, wait a minute, what's going on here? She said, I've seen everybody take credit for what I've done. I've never seen anybody take the hit for my failure. And the guy said, oh, don't worry about it, forget it. She said, no, I demand an answer. He said, well, to be honest, I'm a Christian, and Jesus took the hit for me. 
She's like, where do you go to church? I'm coming. <laughs> Your life should live, be lived in such a way that it demands an answer. People should say, I demand to know what in the world makes you function like that. You do everything differently. We live our lives differently. I believe the local church empowered by the Holy Spirit, in my humble opinion, is the best outreach to the world. The best outreach to the world. Because they look and they see we handle jobs differently. We handle sex differently. 2,000 years ago, it was said of the pagans that they, they shared their beds but not their tables. But of the Christians, it was said they share their tables but not their beds. We're generous where we need to be generous. And yet we're holy and we're set apart. And the people will see this and they will demand an answer and you will gossip the gospel. And lastly, we are to provide for our communities. We are to provide for our communities. We are to be radical in providing for the community. Why serve? You might say, well, now I preach the gospel. Why do I need to do anything else? See, humans are spiritual. They are material. They are social. They are the objects of mercy. And Jesus himself met felt needs. So in response, we too should meet felt needs even to our natural enemies. Is that not what... Our Lord taught us in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which ultimately is a picture of the gospel. Think about it. In the Good Samaritan, a natural enemy motivated by compassion met felt needs without requiring a payment. It's a picture of Jesus, but it's also a picture of the church. And when he met those needs, it wasn't just financial. It was unconditional, sacrificial, and comprehensive. And a lot of times when we talk about provision, it could have to do with money. And sure, that can be a huge part of it. But it could also be a provision of your time, a provision of friendship. I love that about the Good Samaritan. He bandaged his wounds. He took that time, took him into an inn, and then he checked up on him. That's not just, not just giving away your money. That's being a friend. We need to be radical in providing things for people, not just money, although it could be. And I would say that are not our wallets wrapped up into our hearts? You know, one man told John Wesley, the famous evangelist, I am converted. He said, ah, I will believe it when I see that your wallet is converted as well. <laughs> is it not true? There's just something about our stuff. They're like, no, I'm an American, mine. And yet the gospel radically changes us. Oh, no man, anything, Paul said, except to love one another. So how are we motivated to provide for people in all these different ways, practically, financially, relationally? What motivates us? Do we just put up pictures of people in our community? Do we just hear their stories? That will serve as motivation, but then it fades out, doesn't it? Think of all the people right now. I can think of many where I was moved to tears over someone three weeks later. I'm like, whatever, because I'm selfish. And sometimes you're selfish, if I may be so bold. <laughs> so what is that thing that pushes the button deep down in our hearts? What is it? It's not guilt. It's grace. Look at what Paul said about the Macedonians who gave tons of money even when they were impoverished. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
and then by the will of God to us. What was the motivation? Paul tells us in verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. They remembered Jesus and it changed everything. It changed everything when they remembered Jesus. There's an old book and I read this portion and it rocked my world. He's speaking of money, but use it to apply to all these areas. It's the gospel that pushes our button. It's a book by B.B. Warfield called The Person and Work of Christ. And he says, now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. Objection number one, my money is my own. Or you could say my time is my own. My friendship is my own. Answer, Christ might have said my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. Those sinners in Ventura, those sinners in Carpinteria, they're undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said the, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? No, I'll give myself to the good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three. They may abuse it. They may abuse my friendship. They may abuse my money. They may abuse my provision. Answer, Christ might have said the same thing, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, and that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely, give to the vile, give to the poor, give to the thankless, give to the undeserving. Christ is glorious and blessed, and so you will be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own word. It is more blessed to give than to receive. What is the thing that unlocks the doors of our hearts? to reside here and be satisfied in God and yet to preach and to pray and to provide for our communities, it's grace. It's because we realize that God is that good. God really is all satisfying that all of a sudden everything else becomes expendable. Like God, you are that good. You are that amazing. Therefore, in response to you opening up my heart because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I freely give and I give with joy, not out of compulsion, but because I remember the one who was rich, though for my sake he became poor so that his riches could become my riches. May this gospel-centered mindset renew or perhaps today even ignite your passion in praying in preaching and providing for your community as the grace of God just opens your hearts and torrents of living water flow out. May it be said of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we praise you that it is grace that motivates us, not guilt. It is the power of your spirit that enables us, not the flesh. It is your love that compels us, not moral, religious duty. It's because you are so magnificent and your spirit bears witness to your glory that our hearts are opened and things, our possessions, our goods, our time, it becomes expendable and we lay it at your feet and say, God, use it. Lord, may we be a people that are satisfied in you. 
We would even pray right now as we spend time corporately sitting at your feet that you would renew and ignite that passion for you as your grace comes into that deepest part of our heart and just touches the button and our hearts open up and explode. Explode in our hearts right now, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.